thank Jeff James. Is Jeff here this morning? And you get burned out after giving two messages and said, I'm in, I need a break. So anyhow, thanks Jeff. Jeff's one of our elders and he uh, gave us an overview of the Beatitudes the last couple weeks and I appreciate that and enabled us to get some stuff done around here in the church and a little bit of refreshing. So thanks to those that were involved in helping with that. Um, Jim used some of his construction skills in that endeavor as well. So uh, thank you. So anyhow, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be uh, doing something a little bit different this morning. Usually I preach through entire books of the Bible, but we're going to take a little bit of a break and we decided to uh, do this at the beginning of the year to focus a little bit on whether you call them spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices or habits of life that engage us with God. And we talked about the reality of us needing to do these things and and so often, oh, I want to experience the life of Jesus, yet often we fail to live the lifestyle of Jesus. And I think we need to be doing that, recognizing, okay, I'm not a first century rabbi in Palestine, so how I live this out is going to be a little bit different than how Jesus and his followers live that out, but a calling to do some of the things that that Christ did. And we started the beginning of this year with focusing on prayer. And to me, that is, as you look at Jesus' life, one of the things that you constantly see him doing. In the midst of the busyness of life, all the pressures of people coming at him all the time, you often will hear him. He withdrew to a solitary place to pray. He needed to be alone with his Father and to be refreshed. But then to me, the second aspect of Jesus' life that we need to put into practice is that he lived in community. He wasn't one, like one of the early monks that went out in the desert and lived on top of a pole because they wanted to be separate from the world. Jesus had this balance of going and spending time with his father and then entering back into community with fellow believers. Jesus, the very son of God, came into this world and he didn't stand on top of a mountain kind of as a solitary guru and say, anybody who wants to hear, come to me. He chose 12 to be with him that he walked through this life with. And it seemed like there were three even that were closer than the 12. And then there were 72. And then there was a 500 group that all of these were people that he was regularly engaged with in doing ministry. And so we want to take a few weeks to look at this concept of of community and what it means to be a community of believers. And I think this concept is going to be radically challenging for us in our culture. Um, And I don't think we realize how much we're steeped and marinated with this idea of radical individualism, right? That we're all about us and Sociologists talk about different kinds of cultures. One type of culture they call a strong group culture. And that's where the group is more important than the individual. And you see often this in in Asian cultures, some Middle Eastern cultures, where the decisions I make first need to be passed through my family and my society that I'm engaged with. And so people don't think about marrying someone unless they get the approval of their parents. They look to the society, what vocation am I going to take on? And even where I live, all of these are kind of communal decisions. And we hear that in the Western, like that's crazy repressive, right? I don't wanna live in that place. 
Because it's all about me and my rights and what I want. I've got to be me, man. You do you, I do me. And whatever anybody else does, I don't really care about how this impacts the group at large because I need to be true to who I am, right? And we see Jesus, he's living in a strong group culture, right? And so he is walking through this world with a group of fellow followers of God that he's training and bringing along in their growth. And he does that in community. And we talked, uh, I think it's the sixth, in that first Sunday of the month where we gathered for communion and we talked about the church in Corinth and how they got together and communion was just a nightmare in that church, man. Those that were wealthy and had money were showing up early, eating all the foods, food, getting drunk actually. Those that were actually had jobs and had to show up later, they got there, there was nothing there. And Paul says something pretty incredible. He says, some of you have fallen asleep because you failed to recognize the body of Christ. And what I don't think he was talking about there, the body of Christ in terms of Jesus, but the body of Christ in terms of we are the body of Christ. And to me, that tells us how important Jesus views this body of Christ, us as believers being together and looking with love towards one another. And as you read the New Testament, you'll see several analogies for the community. One is the body. We are the body of Christ. We're also the temple. But the one that I wanted to focus on this morning is that we are the family of God, right? Um, and we see this throughout the New Testament that, you know, even in the Lord's Prayer, we start with what? Our Father, okay? If we call God our Father and we are adopted into His family by our faith, what does that make us, right? Brothers and sisters, right? And you'll see this word throughout the New Testament over and over and over, Adelphoi, Adelphoi, Adelphoi. And the word literally is brothers. And when it's used in a more generic sense, it includes sisters as well, brothers and sisters. Philadelphoi, Philadelphia, right? The city of what? Brotherly love. And so to me, this is one of the images that God wants us to have as we look at community, we're to look at community as they looked at family back then. And remember, this is a kind of strong group culture. It's not everybody do their own thing, but they are tightly connected and woven together as family. But you realize as you study Jesus more and more how radical his ideas were even in the culture he went into. Because in that culture, family and your blood ties, especially your ties to the, the nation of Israel were super, super important. And that was top priority. Your commitment to your genetic or your biological family was the most important thing. And then it was to the broader genetic family or blood family of the nation of Israel. And Jesus comes into that and he says some stuff that the prophets had said, but that most Israelites had forgotten about at that time. And it's interesting, as you read through the New Testament, you see where people got into really deep difficulty with the culture. It's often when they brought out the fact that, hey, God loves the Gentiles too. He's concerned about them too. Remember, Jesus goes to his hometown and then he says, you know what? There were a lot of people that had leprosy in Israel, but God sent healing to Naaman, the Syrian. 
And the town was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. God's including all people. No, what do they do? They take him out to a cliff and they want to push him over the cliff. Paul goes back after his missionary journeys to Jerusalem. He's doing pretty well as he's explaining the fact that, you know, Jesus has come. And then when he says, you know, by the way, this is for Gentiles too. They're all like, oh, kill this guy. We want to take this guy out, right? And you see this over and over that it's this bigger family that really ticked off the people of Israel at that time. Racism was predominant in that culture, and it wasn't based on skin color. It was based on ethnic origin. The Jews called Gentiles dogs. We don't want to have anything to do with these dogs. And Jesus has the audacity to broaden that view of family beyond what's biological, beyond what is even national to include all who are seeking to follow God and obey Him. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 3. This is a story Jesus has been ministering. Everybody's crowding around. In verse 31 of Mark chapter 3, it says this, And his mother and his brothers came, standing outside. They sent to him and called him. So mom and the brothers are out there, and these are the people that should have the highest priority in your life, right? Jesus should have immediately dropped everything he was doing and gone to see what's up with mom and the brothers. And a crowd was sitting around him. So this is everybody's around, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Obviously, you need to go out there and see what's going on with your family because that is most important. Right, Jesus? And he answered them. Did they even ask a question? (laughs) But he answers them, right? There's something going on in them that Jesus is responding to and he says, "Mm, your idea of family is a little different than mine. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. That would have been so radical to people at that stage. That there is a tie that is stronger and more significant than that biological blood tie. And that is others that are seeking to follow my father. They are my brothers and sisters, and they actually take priority over my biological family. We hear that Jesus is pro-family, and he is. You see that in Jesus' life. Jesus is hanging on the cross, suffering immensely, and one of the things he does while he's hanging on the cross is he looks at his mom and says, John, you take care of her. So it's not like Jesus is like, I don't care about my family. But if you read some of Jesus' statements, they are almost viewed as anti-family in Scripture. Right? In Luke 14, 26, it says, if you don't hate your mother and your brothers and your father, you can't be, what, my disciple. It's like, whoa, where does that, you know, that's going to sound horrible in that culture. That was an idiom, right? It's not meaning you physically hate them and go after them, but compared to your love for the Father and for me, the feelings you have towards your family and your love towards your family should almost be like hatred. Wow, that's, that's pretty strong, right? 
And then in, Mark, or in Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring this nice warm unity, but sometimes when I come into a family, I divide a father against a son and a mother against a daughter and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That there's division that sometimes comes and Jesus is saying it's better to be divided from your family biologically than from your spiritual family. That would have been radically different for those that were listening. And in Matthew 8, 21, it's an excuse that somebody gives. I can't really follow you, Jesus. Let me go first and bury my father. And we read that and it's like, how callous is Jesus? We said, no, let the bed, dead bury their dead. You follow me. And you're like, what in the world? Well, a couple of things culturally you need to understand. When someone died, they were buried that day. So this guy, if his dad had died just then, he wouldn't have been there. He would have been burying his father already. So what he's saying is, let me wait until my father dies, and then I'll follow you. Let me take my responsibilities at home first, and then after that, and after I get the inheritance and everything's worked out, then I will follow you. But still, Jesus is saying there's a relationship that takes precedence over even your relationship to your earthly father. Again, this is a radical thought in that day, that your spiritual parentage is thicker than your biological parentage. It's more important than that. And I've often heard in the church, you know, it's, it's God first, your biological family second, church third, and then the world fourth. That's how it works. But if you read these things, it's almost like, okay, it's God first, then God's family second, then your family, and then the world. And, and we hear that, and it's all about, that's pretty blasphemous, right? You're, you're, you're stepping on some toes here. But to me, this is what Jesus was teaching that we as his followers are called to be family in a way that's even more intimate and more committed than a biological family. And to us in the West, that just sounds kind of crazy, right? I've been reading a book by uh, Joseph Hellerman. It's called uh, When the Church Was a Family. And if my iPad will start up here. This is what he said. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through often messy processes of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. And that's so different than our culture, right? Because in our culture, if things get difficult, what do we do? I'm out of that church. I'm going to the church down the street. And if it doesn't work out there, then I'm going to the... And, and, and it's like, we come to church, like, church, meet my needs, right? I didn't really like worship this morning. I, I like Brian's style a little better than Stephen's. Or some of you are like, oh, I love it when Stephen leads. And, you know, I'm not as thrilled when Brian leads, you know. And it's like, it's all about me, right? And to recognize and worship that, you know what? We all have different stylistic preferences, and that's okay. Am I here to worship God? 
Or am I here to feel good about the emotion of the music? If that happens, wonderful. But you've got to recognize in a body like this, there are going to be people with all sorts of different musical tastes. You know what? And that's okay. So if it's not your musical taste, what I say, you probably got Spotify on your phone. Go out to your car, put it in, going home, put on whatever you want to put on. But recognize as we gather, we need to be thinking, no, no, this is all about me. And God says, no, this is family. Are you concerned about anybody else there and maybe some of their preferences? And are you willing to give and be gracious in that area so other people can have their preferences met at a particular time? That's why I like the variety because it calls all of us to give a little bit, to recognize, you know, that there's all sorts of different styles and that's okay. Do I love the people around me enough in that way. So what does it mean to be a healthy family? Turn over to the book of Acts, chapter two. This is the baby church just after it was born. Starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people in the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. To me, this is the start of the church. What was present in the church? What's present in a healthy family of believers? The first thing that I see here is that healthy families listen to the Father's instruction. These folks are committed to the apostles' teaching. They're committed to hearing what the Father is saying through His spokespeople. They're devoted to that. A good family is looking to the leaders of that family for direction, vision, guidance, protection. We look and listen to so many voices today. And as you you look at life now, it's like there's all sorts of communities that are trying to be formed, right? So we're a community about, and, and you can get on and you can, you know, have a little group on Facebook or whatever, and you can have the most bizarre, weird ideas, and you're going to get, you know, five or six people among the seven billion in the world that agree exactly with you. You know, and that's community, and that's where we are often in our world. It's, it's community, but it's community without truth. And God has called us into community. Why? To build us up, to make us more Christ-like. And part of that is our growth and understanding of truth and our commitment to, you know what, I'm committed to the Father. I'm going to listen to the Father. So a good family has everybody looking to the Father and saying, hey, how do you want us to interact in this family? And these people were devoted to that. The whole idea of truth kind of goes, we're all about community. We want to feel warm and accepted and loved, and, and I'm all about that. But we often forget that there's a truth component in there. James says, 
that the wisdom from above is first of all pure, then it's peace-loving. It's first pure. We want the peace-loving, and we'll ignore the truth. Just don't talk about this Jesus and who he is and his claims, and just get together, and we'll just all love on one another. That's just beautiful. And that's community, yes, but I don't think that's community to ca- that will cause us to grow in Christ-likeness. There has to be a commitment to me, to the word of God, and to listening to our Father. Second, I see here that healthy families spend a lot of time together. It says they're devoted to the fellowship. This koinonia, this coming together, day by day they were in the temple, and it's like, okay, how do we work this out in our culture today? This is really a challenge, but there's a lot of sociologists that have said, how important this family meal is that we used to have, you know, back in, you watch the 50s sitcoms, that there, there was a time actually where people gathered around a table as a family and would relate to one another and think, that's really, really important and really, really vital. And we do that, ah, it's just a meal. Yeah, it's a meal, but it's a time where there can be conversation. And now, as we gather around a meal and you see people in restaurants, everybody's like, uh-huh oh yeah, I'm here with somebody else. (laughs) It's like, okay, I don't think that's the purpose of gathering as a me. It's like, okay, are we going to be face-to-face? And I'm not a Luddite and I'm not an anti-technology, but I think there's times when we need to put our technology down. We talked about that several weeks ago when we talked about the epidemic of loneliness in our culture and the more social media saturation people have, almost the more their loneliness increases paradoxically. And you think, oh, you know, I'm liked by zillions of people around the world, but I just feel so alone because there's no real people that you sit down face to face with and communicate with we're in the midst of this epidemic of loneliness and talked about some of the stats on that that doctors say that it's worse than smoking 15 cigarettes a day if you're lonely or being obese so this is a a reality and Theresa may and when she was prime minister in england appointed a minister of loneliness. Why? Because this was a public health crisis that they see it at. So we need to get together. We need to be face to face with one another. One of the things I love about Jesus is that you constantly see him eating a meal. Someone has said, you know, if you read about Jesus in the New Testament, he's either just leaving a meal, <laughs> in a meal, or going to a meal. You know, it's, it's all about just, yeah, we're just gathered to eat and to, to have fellowship with one another and talk to one another face to face. And, and we poo-poo these little things, but those little things are really significant because we're not going to really open up to somebody that we don't know. And we need this kind of process of opening up and getting to know people where we can share our hearts with one another and that takes time it just takes time I see also in here that healthy families share their stuff if you read this Jim was talking about you know is the early church communistic or socialistic and you can read some of this over in Acts 4 as well in verse 32 Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. And you read that, it's like, wow, what? This is really different than than our culture, right? Really, really different. Is that what God is calling us to? I don't think that exactly is what God's calling us to. 
But he is calling us to be very, very concerned about genuine needs in the body. And if we've got extra resources to view those people as our family and say, you know what, I'm going to give to you because I've got extra right now. This is a legitimate need. Imagine if a mom or dad came home and their paycheck and they're just like, okay, this is my paycheck. Junior, fend for yourself. You want to eat tonight? Go out, get a job. It's like, no, that's not what a family does, right? We share stuff. We were just up in Birmingham at a state park, and as a family, we're up there, and you know, it's like, oh, that's really good sushi, and someone gives you a bite of it, and you're like, onlookers are like, oh, that's pretty gross. They're sharing their food, and, and they're better, you know, all this kind of stuff. But that's what a family does, right? It's not weird in a family. But we are often so isolated that we don't even know what needs our brothers and sisters have. And I get to be in a really cool position often to see how the body ministers to one another and and to realize, oh man, I just heard somebody's washer went out and then somebody says, hey, I can help with that need. Let's just do it anonymously. It'll come through the church and we'll help out in that way. And often that takes place within the family of believers, right? Sometimes we want, oh God, I want you to zap me and, and, and just I want to hear completely from you and I want to have this all from you. And, and God says, usually I work through all the people around you. Sometimes he does that. I'm a pastor that I know that he was in seminary and the car busts down and he's just really despondent. He's like, God, I'm trying to follow you. And, and then it's just everything's a struggle. And he's walking and he's praying and... $300 bills blow across the road in, in front of him and he, he picks them up and he's like, okay, that stuff happens, but that's, this, that's the way we want God to act all the time. But often it's not directly God putting $100 bills in your hand. It's often, hey, I've got a need. And then I'll hear, yeah, we've got some extra resources and I can provide for that need. It's great when that amazing stuff happens, but I think that's the exception rather than the rule in terms of how God ministers in his family. But am I willing to let go of my stuff if my brother or sister is in need? And again, as you read this, you see, okay, there's, there's some change that happens, right? You get to the book of Thessalonians and there are people that are then kind of taking advantage of this tendency in the church to share. And they're sitting around just saying, we're just waiting for Jesus to come back. Church, we're hungry. Church, we need a place to stay. And what does Paul say? Get a job, right? Get out there and get a job. If you have the ability, get a job. And then later on, it's like there are some that are widows and they're, hey, you could you know, get married and be gainfully engaged in life. And if you're at a certain age, 60 or over, and if you've done certain things, then the church will provide for you. So you see, okay, it's not just, okay, Whoever wants something, the church has this big pot of money that everybody sells all their stuff and gives it to us and then we distribute that. It's no, as they had a need, right? A need is one of those really elastic words, right? I need Netflix, right? I need an iPhone 12, I, you know? And it's like, no, maybe not. But if there's a genuine need, what a healthy family does is they meet that need. You don't say to one of your kids, "Ah, oh, sorry. You know, I'd much rather have a nicer car than for you to get this health problem taken care of. So figure it out. No, it's how can I be engaged in your life and help financially if I have the resources to do that. 
And it wasn't mandated, right? We see Barnabas, he sells a piece of the land in Acts 5 and the church is like, oh, we love Barnabas, he's just great. And then Ananias and Sapphira are like, ooh, we want some of that love. So we're gonna sell some property, but eh, not quite as generous as Barnabas, so we're gonna give half and, and hold the other half, but we're gonna say that we gave everything, right? And the Holy Spirit comes down really hard on them. Why? Because they were hypocritical in their practice of love. And they said, didn't that property belong to you fully? You didn't have to sell it, right? So it's not, New Testament does not mandate no personal property. That's not what is being taught. But I think you see a pattern in the New Testament. If there's a material need, we in the body should meet that need. And yes, there's limitations and there's boundaries and there's guidelines and all that stuff there, but is our heart open in the use of our wallet? It's tough for us in this culture. Like, nope, nobody touches my finances. So, healthy families share. Healthy families also open their hearts to one another. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 7. This is Paul talking. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very own selves because you had become very dear to us. Sometimes I think of Paul as like this Lone Ranger super missionary. He goes into town, delivers the gospel, you know, gets probably beaten a couple times and heads out and moves on. He's like, oh, I'm here about the gospel. I don't have time for personal relationships, right? And he's like, no, we, we were there and, and we wanted to give and give and give and, and you're dear to us. You're precious to us. We delight in being with you. Our hearts are open to you. Paul says in another place, open them to us. To me, one of the challenges in developing community is getting to that place where we're real and honest with one another, where it's our real heart that we're showing, not just the superficial, fine, fine, how are you doing? And I don't think there can be community without honesty and transparency. And I think that only happens in an atmosphere where grace is the bedrock foundation of that body of believers. And here, there's this tension we see in Scripture. In John 1, it tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth, right? That there's that sense of, I'm going to be open and share with you. James 5 says we're to confess our sins one to another. And it's like, man, I'm not going to do that. Because what is this person going to think of me? But I think the reality is, if we do that, then there's healing that comes. If we keep all this stuff inside, those private areas of our lives that I don't let anybody into, I don't think there's going to be growth and transformation and change. But I'm not going to be honest with somebody unless I know that person's not going to push me away and reject me. And that only happens when the other person realizes, you know what, I've been forgiven so much and I'm not coming into this relationship with an attitude of condemnation and I'm better than you and why don't you get your act together? Right? 
Jesus, to the woman caught in adultery, says, I'm not condemning you. Yeah, this was not good, but I'm not condemning you. Am I gracious with other people? Stories told about God sending a couple angels down to the world to see how people are doing. And they search the world around and they come back and uh, it's, it's, it's not good at all. 99% of the people, they're a complete mess. There's 1% that's, that's doing all right. So God ponders for a while. I said, oh, am I going to come hard down on those 99%? And just sh-? No, and he's like, no, it's my kindness that leads to repentance. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send a, just a really encouraging email to that 1%. Do you know what that email said? Neither do I. I didn't get it either. <laughs> the reality is, right, according to Scripture, none of us got that email. We all have fallen short. And as Jeff was talking about last week, it's the guy that was forgiven billions of dollars in debt going and shaking down somebody that owed him about 10 grand. He said, there's something deeply wrong with that, right? So first, I need to understand how much I've been forgiven. And when I do that, then I can be gracious with one another. But I can also say, hey, I'm not condemning you, but how can I help you go and sin no more? That's the truth part of it. What our culture likes is, hey man, I'm not condemning you, but nothing about go and sin no more. See, I can be accepted, but I'm not going to be transformed just by being accepted. I'm going to be transformed where I have people in my life that will admonish, encourage me, and say, okay, how can I help you change and become more like Christ? And I think that's really hard to do on our own. We all have blind spots, right? What's the problem with blind spots? You can't see them, right? I'm doing pretty good, right? I thought I was really patient until I had children. Then I realized, okay, this is a pretty big blind spot in in my life that I need to deal with, right? And when we're with one another, one of the realities of that is that we can't hide our junk from one another, right? It just comes out when we're living as a family. You know everything that's going on there. Yet that's a beautiful thing. If I can go with that attitude of I'm not condemning you, how can I help you grow and change? When I was a little kid, I loved rocks. I used to have a rock tumbler. Anybody ever had one of those things, right? It's a little thing, you put in these rocks that are really nasty looking and you put it in there and it goes around and around and you put it in there with some coarse sand and then the sand gets finer. And After four weeks, you pull out those rocks and they're shining and they're beautiful and you can see that agate and you can see all the... It's like, that's a beautiful thing. You know what? All of us have rough edges. And if we're just alone, those rough edges probably aren't going to be working. I'm just don't, I don't do, I'm not, you know, just keep me at a distance. But if we get into community, one of the things that happens in that rock tumbler, if you touch it, it gets a little warm. Why? Because there's friction in there, right? It's going around and around and around. And we're going to, as James says, stumble in many ways. And sometimes when I stumble, I'm going to step on your foot. And you're going to be like, that hurts. I love you, but I don't like you very much right now, right? And that's every good family, right? If you're married, you just know the reality of that. But a family stays together. They don't say, I'm bailing on this because you ticked me off. No, they work through that. There's Matthew 18. There's Galatians 6, right? 
If I see a brother or sister that's in trouble, that's ensnared by sin, I go to do that and restore them with gentleness and respect. And if that doesn't work, then the heat gets turned up a little bit more. But the goal of all of that is transformation into Christ-likeness. Not saying you're a bad person. But it's, look, no, the way you're going ultimately is going to lead to death, and I don't want that. I want you to be polished and beautiful in the sight of God, the character of Christ displayed. That's the ideal, right? As we work together and we're going to struggle together and the reality is so often we have super unrealistic expectations of what the body of Christ is going to be like, right? I'm just going to come in there and every time I go to home group, it's just going to be this, oh, amazing experience. Every time I come to church, I'm like, oh, amazing experience. It's like, no, that's not family life, is it? There's some really awesome times in family, but a lot of times it's just like, yeah, I got to do the laundry or yeah, I got to cut the grass. And, and that's just life, right? But in the midst of that, what I call the messiness of grace, life works out and God grows us and transforms us and changes us. And I don't know about you, but I want to be part of that transformation. I want to be a part of a body of believers that is committed to one another as a family is committed to one another. And not just, uh, yeah, high five at you, we'll see you. And again, I've got a lot of questions about how this works out. How big does this community have to be? You see Jesus, he's got a group of three, seems closest with, then 12, then 72, then 500. How close can you be? But the reality is I think we all need people that we can be honest and real with in the body. And we need one another, and we're going to flesh this out more in weeks to come, but the reality is we're called to be family We're called to be, as Jesus said, related to one another more closely even than our biological family. And again, this is really hard for those of us raised in the radically individualistic West. To think that I'm going to ask somebody else in my circle of believers, hey, what do you think about my taking this job or this promotion? It's like, no, I don't talk to anybody. It's like, it's more money. that's, That's where I'm going. It's like, yeah, but what if that job requires you to be gone two-thirds of the time right now? How's that going to impact your family? How's that going to impact your ministry that you're engaged in? All of those kind of things. But we in our case, like, mm, I make my decisions, right? And to think about opening that part of my life up to anybody else in the body that can push back a little bit, it's like, no. Oh. There's part of me that really wants community and there's part of me that's, whoa, I want to be far away from this stuff because I just like doing my own thing and making my own decisions, thank you. But I don't think I'm really going to change and grow unless there's some people pushing back and say, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? It's like, I don't really want to think about that. I want what I want. It's like, no, I, I think you really need to think about that. To me, that's going to produce growth and change and transformation towards Christ-likeness. And it's going to be tough at some times, right? We're going to make mistakes. We are human. None of us have arrived. We are all still stumbling on our road to holiness. None of us have arrived there yet. And we've got to be really gracious with one another and kind and caring. But Lord, I want this place to be that. I don't want us to be a, hey, dude, fine, get out of here. So we're going to 
need to think through this. How does this look in our culture? Hebrews 3 says, encourage one another daily. That means we probably get discouraged daily and we need encouragement. So how does that work in my life? How does that work in the circle of people around me? And so I want to leave you just with a question. Just to sit down and pray and ask the Holy Spirit, how can I be a more encouraging member of this family of believers that you have brought me into? We can't all do everything and be involved in every different thing. We're all different, and I know that. But how, Lord, are you calling me to be an engaged, loving, committed member of a family? Is there an issue that I need to work through with somebody? Somebody's ticked me off, somebody's stepped on my toe, and I'm just like, I'm just done. Is there somebody that you know needs some financial help, and you've got the resources, and you can give it? I don't know what it is, but I know what God is calling us to is more than just, we're in here, hour and 15 minutes, almost 12, man, he's going way too long. Why is that guy talking, talking, talking? Just boom. And I thank God that we're a church that when we end up, everybody's not like rushing to the door and out of here. We just hang out. Sometimes like, are you people ready to leave? Come on, get, get going. Yeah, I'm hungry. I want to get to lunch. But that's a really healthy thing, right? Because it shows that we actually like one another and we recognize that we need one another. So I don't know how this is going to work, but I want it to work in this body of believers. And I know there's so many cultural factors that push against this. Man, I'm just way too busy. And that's probably true. But I think also probably most of us, the issue is not so much busyness, but priorities. I've got time to binge Lupin on Netflix seven episodes in a row but you know getting together with somebody in the church that maybe needs something I just I'm really really busy sorry so sometimes it's just priorities and I realize there are times in life where it's really busy if you're a doctor doing your residency or internship and you're working 90 hours a week okay I understand that you're a young mom who's got yeah I understand that But I think for a lot of us, our busyness is just priorities. And maybe we need to rearrange priorities so that community can be a bigger part of our life. And maybe not even doing different things, but inviting somebody to do the things you're already doing along with you. Hey, we gotta eat, right? right. Let's eat with people. Let's get to know people in that way. And again, this is gonna fight against our natural, radically individual. I make my own decisions. It's all about me. I don't want anybody pushing into my life. Man, that's micromanaging. And I know there's abuses of that. When I was doing college ministry, there was a Boston Church of Christ movement where it was hyper, you know, you had a discipler and that discipler, you had to talk to him about what you were wearing, who you were going to date, all these kind of things. And it was just uber controlling. And I, I know there's toxic churches out there, okay? I don't want to be that but I want to be a healthy family where you're able to challenge me and say, hey, you want to look at this with me? I'm just kind of curious about how you're working this out in your relationship with God. And where we're spending time with one another and we know what's going on. So if there is a need, then I can say, hey, you know, somebody's got a need and somebody say, yeah, I've got resources. I can meet that need. And again, I'm not here to say we're not doing this. We are doing it, but let's do it more. That's my encouragement. 
So ask the Holy Spirit, how are you asking me to be a more encouraging member of this body of believers, this family, this community that we call Grace Community Church? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have called us to community, that we are family, that what binds us together is nothing other than Jesus Christ and our relationship with him and our being adopted children of the Father. So Lord, we want to do this well. When we do it well and when we love our brothers and sisters, your word says that the word gets out and the world recognizes that you're real and true. And Lord, there's so many things in our culture that push against this. There's stuff in our own lives. We don't want to be accountable. We don't want to be vulnerable. We fear that. We don't know how people are going to respond. Yet, Lord, there's a huge price to be paid for isolation. So help us, Lord, to connect. Fill us with your Spirit. Help us to be the family of God. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. Help us to remember how much we have been forgiven and to show grace and to accept one another as you have accepted us. Lord, none of this is natural to us. So we just ask for your spirit to fill us, enable us to be what we are not naturally for the glory of Jesus Christ and for our transformation more and more into his image. And it's in his precious name I pray. Amen. Amen.